Hi, I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. So Jen, our guest today is Dr. Ellen Bassett, and she's somebody who's been on our radar for a while. She's a former colleague of Tim Beatley's at the University of Virginia and currently serves as the John Portman Dean of the College of Design at Georgia Tech. So she's actually not too far from Serenby. Yes. And I actually met Ellen very briefly at the Biophilic Leadership Summit, where she moderated a panel about how educators approach biophilic design and thought she was super compelling. So I was thrilled to get her on the podcast today. Yeah, me too. So listen, Ellen is an urban planner and she's got phenomenal expertise, really lies in land use, planning, law, sustainability, a little bit of health in the built environment, and as well as international development, particularly in the global South. You know, I didn't know that Ellen had spent a decade living in Kenya, has been back many times throughout her career. So I really loved also hearing about those experiences. My gosh, I totally agree. I think it's given her really broad perspective on topics like urban planning, land use, and biophilia. So in this interview, we chat with Ellen about her path from the suburbs of Detroit, how she became an interested in urban planning, the impactful year she spent abroad in Africa, and the amazing work being done in Georgia Tech's College of Design. All right, so let's get to our interview with Dr. Ellen Bassett. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you. We have like sort of met in the Serenby world before, but Jennifer is new to you and we're super excited to hear everything that you're working on, especially your new role at Georgia Tech and urban planning and biophilia. We won't ask too many questions. We'll talk about your new office and, you know, your good friends <laughs> and Beatley, but we're just thrilled okay. to finally have gotten you on the podcast. Well, thanks very much. Actually, one of the first people to reach out to me after I took this position as the dean at Georgia Tech was Steve Nygren. So, and oh, fantastic! Right away, got a very extensive tour with Philip as well. Yep, it was really fabulous to see what is going on there. And also, I have to say, my I have some in-laws who live in Noonan, and they were actually keen to think about Serenby and ultimately decided to stay in Noonan. But we had a lot of discussions about yep. all the fantastic design interventions you're doing and all that sort of novel innovations at Serenby. So it's exciting. Yeah, so, yeah. It's been a lot of fun. I'm thrilled to talk to you today. And I certainly could talk about any of the above topics you just kind of outlined there. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, I'd love to learn more about your background, honestly, sure. and how you got to where you are today and your interest in nature and design. Okay, sure. Well, I have to say, I think like many, many people who went into urban planning in like the 1980s, I was a suburban kid in suburban Detroit. If you've ever driven through suburban Detroit, it's a pretty bleak landscape from a design perspective. The five lane country road used to be a country road, now sort of a, you know, a big arterial, lots of strip commercial, pretty terrible cookie cutter development. No bike pet infrastructure, lots of trees being cleared, lots of farms disappearing. So I tell my students when I would, they'd ask, because I'm always curious actually why students get into urban planning, because we're not exactly like when you're in your cradle, your parents aren't cooing over you saying, 
they might be saying, you know, oh, my little lawyer or my little doctor, but they're not saying, oh, my little urban planner. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I tell students that there's like two formative things that were in my life was one, I used to ride my bike all the time. I still ride my bike all the time, but I would ride on those country roads. And over the course of moving into a town called Farmington Hills, Michigan, at the time I graduated, all the farms I used to visit on my bike all disappeared, mm. right? So the mm. growth, some of the best farmland in the United States, certainly in Michigan, is under asphalt right now mm. in, in Metro Detroit. So kind of losing the farms, that was sort of like, this is not fun. I didn't like it. But then when I got my driver's license, when I was a kid growing up, my parents wouldn't let us go to Detroit. And this says a lot about the racial politics of Detroit, which are very similar to Atlanta, disinvestment in the city core, you know, suburban sprawl being... You know, having a racialized dimension. And so when I was about, I don't know, 16, got my driver's license, I think it was a police concert or something. And so my nice. parents go downtown, take the lodge, drive in, park under Cobra Arena, and whatever you do, don't look around. So of course we drove around. I was like, I've had to see this. And I just remember being really shocked by Detroit. Like I hadn't realized the disinvestment had known that there was something called Devil's Night where people would, well, people, it was it was sort of a tradition to set abandoned houses on fire, wow. which I always thought was destruction. Wow. It was getting crack dealers out of your neighborhood, right? It was, it was also a way wow. of asserting control. And so I just was really shocked at how troubled the city was, how disinvested. I hadn't seen, hadn't experienced that kind of level of yeah, I hadn't really confronted the city until when I was allowed to drive around, around mm-hmm. alone. So it got me super interested in cities. Like, why was Detroit so bigger, different than Chicago, right, downtown? Mm-hmm. And so as an undergrad, I didn't study it because it's not a normal undergraduate degree. But I did really get intrigued with it when I was at graduate school at Wisconsin. And so that's when I took a couple of urban planning classes and went into urban planning as my master's degree. So that's sort of the role there. But I have a serious, serious wanderlust. Ah. And so... <laughs> Instead of graduating and getting a, a kind of a standard job, I decided to join the Peace Corps. So that took me to East Africa. And I think it was really in East Africa that I pivoted from being a planner who thought mostly about jobs, which of course mm. makes sense when you grew up in Metro Detroit, to being somebody who thought about land and environment mm. and land use. And so if you talk about kind of what my research has been in, it's been around cities of the global south, but particularly access to land, access to decent housing, addressing issues like slum settlements, urban deprivation, right? So goods and services, clean water, clean air, decent roads, transportation. That's kind of been my area. Mm. But East Africa is a very, very beautiful place. And so when I think about your your theme of biophilia or thinking about nature and and human well-being, I mean, I didn't have a name on it, but there's Mm -hmm. nothing watching elephants in the wild, right? And there's something really evocative. I mean, if you know anything about elephants, they're like amazing. They're matriarchies, right? They take care of each other. If they die, they get, they carry them. They go visit mm. places. Elephants. I mean, they're just amazing. They they are definitely enough to make you a vegan or a vegetarian, right? <laughs> you should not eat yeah. animals or any animals. And so I really pivoted and thought a lot about environment, environmental planning as you know part of also who I was in addition to my sort of urban focus. How long were you in the Peace Corps? Well, I was in Peace Corps for really two years, but I stayed in East Africa for a little over a decade. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So I was in Kenya for five and a half years. 
And then in that time, I was really working very urban. I was working for something called the Ministry of Local Government in the government of Kenya. And so we were working mainly with smaller towns, trying to deal with issues of infrastructure, in particular with housing. And then when I moved to Uganda, uh, I worked for the World Wildlife Fund mm-hmm. and for the World Conservation Union. And both of those jobs were around national parks. Okay. And so working with, um, on my side, I was working with community groups to try to think about land use, more rural communities and farming, but not in particular, these were park adjacent communities. So they wouldn't go into the national park and I don't know, you know, crop, they had problems of, you know, people would poach mm-hmm. or they would go mm-hmm. and dig sort of traditional roots and things that would disrupt the ecosystem, disrupt the, you know, the forest cover and things like that. So that was kind of what I did prior to taking an what I thought was going to be a temporary job as an assistant professor <laughs> year two, and then I get back to Africa. Next thing I know, I'm I'm a professor. That's what um, I was going to so. say. So you came back to yep. the states and took a temporary I, professorship. That's so yeah. interesting. It just sort of—I don't want to say you stumbled into it because I'm not sure, but oh no, I stumbled. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm fascinated. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm fascinated by everything leads right. Each thing we do. Yeah. Whether we re- mm-hmm. recognize it or not, it's going to lead to the next thing. Yeah. And whether it's yeah. setting you up from a professional yeah. or just you meet that person yeah. and they drop, you yeah. know, my husband brought me, well, we both brought each other to Atlanta, but he got a job from San Francisco to Atlanta. And so like, oh, sure. I ended up in Atlanta. Like if you had ever asked me as somebody who grew up in Los Angeles, would I ever end up in Heck no, the South? Not- Never. So don't know where yeah. it's going to go. <laughs> where was that first? Where Did you go back to Michigan or where, where was that first yeah, so that was the weird, funny things. Yeah, yeah. I have a bunch of colleagues who I swear to God have mapped their careers out, and I'm going to become mm. president. I'm like, I don't know. I just couldn't <laughs> take it. it. Looks interesting. Yeah, I was offered a visiting assistant professor job at Michigan State, and I went to University of Michigan, so it was kind of like, oh my god. But it was really a wonderful time. Got me into the academy. Yeah, I met my husband there. That kind of thing. And it's funny because you know we're getting far enough away from it. I came back in July of 2001, mm-hmm. and then September 11th happened. Oh, yeah. It's hard to tell the current crop of students just how dramatic that was yeah. and how it really changed the world. I remember picking up the phone to my mother, who had always been worried about me in East Africa, especially in Uganda. We had a we had a war in the Congo right on our border. And I said, so you thought I wasn't safe in Africa? Uh-huh. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Watching that unfold. So... But yeah, so I went to Michigan State. I am what I would call an accidental academic. I really thought, you know, I'm going to get the PhD. I'm going to go work for an international agency, USAID or the World Bank or Mm -hmm. World Wildlife Institute, you know, or WRI or whatever, right? And instead, I ended up a professor because it's a pretty rewarding career. It's really rewarding to work with students in particular. I think teaching is probably, I think anyone who lasts in academia loves teaching, Mm -hmm. right? And the ability to do independent work, I kept up my ties to Africa, so mm-hmm. I continued going back to Africa. But I also had the ability to kind of dig into my own country. And I had been mm-hmm. gone for well over a decade, so it felt kind of nice to be in the United States and sort of think about planning and what was happening in communities that had sort of spurred me to initially go into planning, right? Mm-hmm. One of the first things I did in coming back into the United States was actually to do some work on Flint, Michigan. So another really disinvested oh, wow. city. And actually, I have to say that ideas of bringing nature into the city, food systems, planning, 
thinking how you rework what was a very industrial place to be a place of you know livelihoods and you know decent living. I think Flint, there's been some really great things that have happened in that in that particular community. So going back to Michigan was kind of weird, mm-hmm. yeah, but it was also rewarding. Yeah. So well, you were like the adult now. You know, you were the student there. And now um, you're like, oh, I, I am actually in charge. I am in yeah, charge of the students. <laughs> right, right. And I wasn't living in Metro Detroit. I was living in a new community. I was getting to know a different kind of place. Yeah. Especially thinking about from a design perspective, a city design perspective, trying to do things right. I mean, right now, Portland's getting a lot of bad press. I know. Because there is enormous challenge with yeah. homelessness. And, you know, it is true. Fentanyl is really brutal on the West Coast, mm-hmm. from what I can tell. But Portland has done really wonderful things, right? They removed the highway on the Willamette Pearl River. Street is an incredible, you know, success story. Yeah, yeah. Pioneer Square. Yep. They're putting in bioswales. It's got a great greening program. The Friends of Green Street sort of people. So it's it's a really wonderful city from I think from an urban design perspective, mm-hmm. but also really from a perspective thinking about how do you get nature into a city. And- Funny, because when you think about the ultimate or it's sort of the, the fundamental way that Oregon is different than many parts of the United States is that they draw these urban growth boundaries around their cities. Mm-hmm. And it has kind of inherently this idea that that is rural and this is urban, right? Mm-hmm. So nature's out there and this is the city. Right. But that's not at all what it looks like, right? Mm-hmm. That they're very focused on the city being a green space, the city being a productive space for food and things like that. But it is true that the major farms are in the hinterland, but very tightly close. Like it's a much denser, tighter city. And so if you've talked to Tim Beatley, yeah. he did his master's degree in Oregon because he was so interested to understand the planning system there and how it functioned. That was where he did his work. So, mm-hmm. you know, Portland is a city dear to my heart. I still have a house there. And it's a place where I am watching, you know, and sure. challenge that aside. Some of the things that they're facing, we're facing in Atlanta, mm-hmm. right? middle housing, interests of infrastructure, ensuring that canopy cover for mm-hmm. climate change mitigation are in all communities, not just the north and the east of, of yeah. Atlanta, right? And so it, there's a lot of commonalities, even though the cities are extraordinarily, I think, different demographically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting, Ellen, you just said that because I think that's a thread, right? It's not just the East Coast or the West Coast or Atlanta. It's, like it's happening mm-hmm. all over the country, more like actually all over the world is kind of awareness of we need to be better planners to understand the climate change that's really happening in terms of water, heat, et cetera. So how do we get these canopies across mm-hmm. The different cities and again the education part too yeah well one of my colleagues here is really you know on the leading edge of that brian stone so brian stone is in city and regional planning he has a book that was about the coming climate right he's been really focused on nature-based solutions on canopy on sort of these issues of equity and mm. dealing with climate resilience and i think we're extremely lucky in atlanta that this is a place where you can almost put a piece of wood like a a broom into the ground and it'll sprout, right? I mean, it's so it's so rich, right? Mm-hmm. The, the really fertile soils. So we have a good possibility with nature-based mm-hmm. solutions, but it's going to be a really hot climate here. I mean, it's already hot. I get hotter, right? Yeah, I know. We talked about that last summer. You know, it really felt like there was a shift here in Atlanta. And, and, and you know, I, I don't know if you felt the same way in New York. I mean, even being out on Long Island, I was, and it was warmer mm-hmm. than it had been. So Absolutely. I, I think... 
the tree cover is, I mean, you know, when we talked to Tim, I was so moved when the studies that he shared about tree cover, and if you have more tree canopy in a city, you know, you have better health outcomes, but it's such a disproportionate because it's typically wealthier communities that have kept that tree cover. And so there's this whole equity piece that it's so important. And, you know, we talk about like Tree City USA, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, Atlanta, but it's incredible. So tell us a little bit about Georgia Tech, because I know, so you you went to Portland, popped, I think at some point, I don't know if it was a direct linear to UVA, right? And that's where Tim comes in. And then from there to here. So tell me a little bit of the difference, because I was sort of fascinated learning about the college of design that you're in, Mm -hmm. that it actually includes music, architecture, building construction, city and regional planning, and industrial design. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenbee. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. It is about twice the size of UVA. Okay. And it is more diverse college than UVA. So what sort of brings us together is really this sort of nexus of thinking about, of course, we're tech. So technology plays a role in Mm -hmm. any of our degree programs. And so in music, we're not a full-fledged music school. The degree program is actually called music technology. So we have laptop orchestra. We have the Guthman International New Instrument Competition where people create new instruments. And it's a big festival in art. And we still have all the normal ensembles, orchestra, jazz. Uh, Tonight we have uh, Rock the West Village concerts or rock concerts. So, you know, it's full-fledged. A lot of tech students participate in our ensembles. The School of Music itself is smaller and more focused on technology. So one of my colleagues there has a marimba-playing robot named Shimon, and Shimon is improvised with other musicians. So it's a fascinating, creative kind of space. And so I think technology is one theme, creativity is the other. Mm-hmm. So if you look across all of the schools, certainly within architecture and with industrial design, they're designing, they're thinking like, what's the new structure? What's the new product? 
what can we create with our hands? And within city and regional planning and building construction, a lot of it's about bringing people in, bringing processes, efficiency, sustainability. And then I think really the last part is community, that we're really community-engaged practice. The planners are out in the community. The architects are out in the community. We're working with companies. We're working with neighborhoods. We're working with school systems. So I, I think those are three kind of pillars within the college. Have real points of strong expertise. Climate is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. So it's not only climate from what we were talking about with Brian Stone and sort of, let's call it nature-based solutions and canopy and all that, but we've got a colleague named Tarek Raka who is an architect, and he's been using drone technology and imaging to look at especially lower-income neighborhoods on the west side and how do we do residential retrofits to make them not just carbon neutral but positive, Mm -hmm. right? So last year we won the solar decathlon for that, which is like national. Wow. Congratulations. And so it's like using technology in a way that is really community facing and community benefiting. Mm -hmm. So climate is something that I think we're really focused on. We've got lots of inputs on, you know, we get great big data kind of analytics on that. Another place is really design and health. Design and health is a really, certainly a way to think about biophilia coming in. And I think Mm -hmm. we do design and health from, whether it's like the landscape and the places in which people are living, that kind of design. So can you walk? Can you bike? Is it safe? Is it quiet? Is it got tree cover, right? That kind of stuff to the building itself, right? So we've got a lab called Simtegrate Design Lab. And so Simtegrate has done a lot of medical facility planning mm-hmm. and they've got an amazing project right now that actually has good resonance with Serenby, which is about mild cognitive impairment. Oh, interesting. So people early edge of, say, dementia, uh-huh. how do things like how they design their interiors of their home, what's the color palette they use, mm-hmm. how do we work with them? So one of the industrial design professors has been working with them. How do you make a simpler remote control? I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I don't have cognitive decline. That I, know, but, <laughs> I no, agree. I find your average... <laughs> Remote control, like, oh my God. So many buttons. So many buttons. Yeah. Don't need them all. <laughs> so yeah. the user space is really important. And so mm-hmm. that kind of design. So, and so then I kind of went from the house to the product. So mm-hmm. design and health is a space that we're super, super active in, which is really mm-hmm. fantastic. And then really, you know, one of our last strengths is around community engaged design and community engaged public policy and analysis. Laura Raymond is a professor right now who's been really looking at, so we talked already about affordable housing. There's something called the financialization of the housing market. So after the Great Recession, a lot of private equity rushed in and bought all those houses going up for foreclosure. Yes. And people do not have access to starter homes because they're in kind of corporate ownership. Like it's Mm -hmm. exacerbated our housing problem. Isn't that the weirdest thing ever? I just like to stop you. Like Mm -hmm. I read about that and it is unbelievable where you yeah. have these developments and mm-hmm. you know people will do research and they're like one LLC owns all yeah. of these homes. Yep. And to your point, like the missing middle, the country, right? All municipalities have been challenged. I, you know, my family's in California. So I hear a lot about it in California, but all municipalities say, you know, you have to figure out how to do the missing yeah. middle ADUs, you know, they're really opening mm-hmm. stuff up. And this just exacerbates it. Like, it's kind of surprising that it hasn't been, or maybe it is being looked at on the federal level. The housing markets tend to be local. Housing development control is local, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. locality that does it. To their credit, Decatur just did a really good ordinance revision. 
So you can do a lot more by right, you know, flex or things like that. But sort of bring it in, you know, the, the one school I haven't talked about, building construction, they are thinking about how do we do more efficient processes? How do we use new materials? What type of new sort of production? And so we just had this wonderful webinar on essentially, you know, 3D printed buildings. Yeah. And and there's some Mm -hmm. great potential, especially for things the scale of an ADU, make things quite affordable. And so I was joking the other day that I need somebody to give me a few hundred thousand dollars so we could buy one of those machines (laughs) and train our people and get them out there because it's fast, it's cheap. Yeah. quality that we need to produce way more housing than we're producing. Well, and I've always been fascinated with the 3D printing or these new innovative Mm -hmm. ways to build, whether that's going to be, you know, low carbon concrete beyond the hay bale, but like, what's the innovative new materials? And I talked to Steve about it. We have an incredible Mm -hmm. nonprofit called the Art Farm here, and they do artist Mm -hmm. cottages and there are, you Mm -hmm. know, smaller footprints. And I've always thought, God, what if we could be a demo of all these different types of building materials, then test it, like be there to say like, well, is it livable? How did we feel in the summer and have sort of that output? Because we worked with Rural Studio to build the first two, but I would love a 3D printed one. I just think maybe we'll have to come together and raise money. Yeah. So we have a guy named Evan, I think it's the Hegip, how you pronounce Uh it. And Evan, working really in this new material space. He's a PhD from Virginia Tech. And yeah, he's the sort of guy that we would, that would be a connection. We wanted to put one out in front of the building. It's called the Cadell Building where building construction is. Just so people could walk by it. Yeah, and see. sure, exactly. What is this? Yeah, yeah. yeah, prefab even, more prefab. So that all that waste when you do building is left, you know, it's not out on the field. You're recycling it automatically yeah. or using less in manufacturing. Anyway, are you seeing a lot more students interested in these kind of modalities that you haven't seen before? Because I feel like these are not new, but kind of new, but maybe there's just more or newer awareness of why. So I'm curious if there's like more interest from the young people. Mm. Yeah, I would say in general, especially compared to, I mean, UVA and especially, you know, somebody like Tim, there's a really strong sustainability focus. And mm-hmm. we were called urban and environmental planning there. One thing that I think tech has done that's super interesting is we've done a lot of coursework around the UN SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm-hmm. And there's a really strong interest in sustainability within in the architecture world. It will be what we used to call green art architecture, right? But thinking mm-hmm. about, I think, you know, green architecture and a biophilic design actually are super complementary. And how do you make these sort of processes work? Within certainly city planning, it's not so much the product as it's the process and the people that they're mm-hmm. talking about, mm-hmm. policy environments, and get things going. And definitely, yes, in building construction, I think one of the things that two couple two really cool things about our building construction program. One is yes, we're on the cutting edge of sort of technologies using robotics and drones and ways to sort of streamline production of buildings that will minimize construction waste because we all know. A huge percentage of what goes into landfills is construction waste in the United States. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that's really cool about that particular school is it's kind of changing the face of construction. We Mm. tend to as like white guys with hard hats, right? Yeah. (laughs) And we have a majority female faculty. Wow. Yes. Our chair is female. You know, get just a whole bunch of people who are, you know, we're doing really cutting edge research are committed to thinking about building and also committed to like changing the way the industry looks. I think we would build different communities and buildings if we had more diverse people going into Mm -hmm. those trades, 
those you know professional roles in the first place. And you know, women and and people of color, more diverse ethnic groups, were really super committed to that. And you'll see it. We have a beautiful image I should share share with you. You know, the old one of all the guys with their lunch pails yes. sitting on the I beam. Yeah, the yeah, beam. yeah. We have it with women <laughs> sitting on an I beam. Some have stilettos on, hard hats. Oh, that's fun. Hanging over Atlanta. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's so, really cool. That's so we're really working on that. But I would say, by and large, what's great about a school like this or a college like this is everybody's an idealist. They're going to change the world, right? <laughs> they're trying to do it through their professional orientation. And they're coming at it with many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's through like actual building, whether it's a design, whether it's an interface with a community member, mm-hmm. whether it's changing public policy and law, that's kind of where our space is. So when people say, well, what do you do in the College of Design? I say, well, just look up and look around. <laughs> and look around. Anything. Yeah. If you look around, then I can tell you what we've done in this particular space right now. And so wow. that helps. Because we do kind of, you know, everybody knows architecture, but building construction or industrial design or, you know, some of these fields aren't as known and we're known for engineering. So we have to kind of get our little stake in the ground and tell people what we're doing. Yeah. I know you've only been there a year or two now, but have you seen or has tech seen the demographic of the students changing to your point? Are you able to bring in more women now and people of color to this Um, department? We'll be right back after a quick break. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. So let's just say higher ed is in a challenging place right now. Okay. Right? We are a very international campus. In that mm-hmm. way, we're diverse. So we bring people from all over the world here. Certainly from Georgia, we get some of the, you know, it's really hyper competitive to get in Georgia Tech right now, I have to say. We get something like 50,000 or 55,000 applications. Oh, wow. We accept X number, we expect a class of like 3,500. So it's hard to get into this place. Yeah. yeah. And we've got a majority female student body in architecture now. We're getting closer to that in ID. We still lagged with sort of issues of less represented groups, right? Mm. And I have to say that the recent Supreme Court decision is a challenge. Yeah. And we're working really hard on getting Pell-eligible students into Georgia Tech. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's a great way to do it. And we've got some really great pipelines, connections, say, with the Atlanta Public School District, with Gwinnett County in different ways. You know, we've also got a couple summer programs with the National Organization of Minority Architects. Mm-hmm. So try to get different people to understand the, the different possibilities within these design fields and then try to get them seeing themselves at, at Georgia Tech, right? That's the Well, and that's it, right? You need representation. It's so mm-hmm. much about seeing yourself in. If I think, oh, the construction industry mm-hmm. is all a bunch of white guys, then I'm like, well, how does a woman fit into that yep. at all, Right. But fundamentally, what we want is we want to produce professionals who go into communities and look like the communities they're working in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to your point also, 
when you have diversity of background like that, you're coming at a solution from a different point of view, right? And how it might affect you culturally that an other individual doesn't have that perspective. So just having that push pull and that little bit of messiness is so important for better solution. Some of my students, I mean, one of the most formative moments of my life was I got off a plane in Kenya and they took us to this, actually it was where the, the Olympics people trained in, in Nairobi. And I was kind of jet lagged and I went out just to go for a walk by myself. And it was the first time I was like, oh my, I'm the only white person. Wow. And it's not the same experience, but being like uncomfortable out of your space, realizing your own privilege understanding different. I mean, I think I want every student to have a study abroad experience if they can, because another cultural immersion makes Mm -hmm. you understand so much about the world, makes you much more empathetic, makes you really, I think, a better sort of citizen. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, to the extent we can get all of our students to get abroad, I feel like every day I'm really thankful I lived in another culture for a (laughs) long time. Because it really has enabled me to be more empathetic, to listen better, or whatever. But it's been super informative and, and important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking you out of yourself and out of your oh everyday—that yeah, discomfort of, we need. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have that discomfort, to your point, you don't sometimes have empathy. You know, because you're just ah, you're comfortable. Everybody's you're just comfortable. fine. Everybody, you know, and it's yep. like oh, yeah. no, 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 not everybody's fine. Yeah. We haven't really talked that much about biophilia. I'm happy to talk to you about when I was first introduced. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That'd be great. We'd love that. that. Well, I mean, I have to say that there's kind of the written idea of biophilia and then there's the lived experience. So Mm -hmm. as I said earlier, it really was being in East Africa when I really understood place attachment like really well and being in nature and how significant it was to me. So I remember flying in one time and seeing like Mount Kenya and, and being like, oh, wow, I'm back, you know, and I just really being attached to a place mm-hmm. and that the beauty and the sense of being in nature, when, especially if you're on a, like a safari and you're watching some extraordinary animal, you just feel like, wow, the, the world is, is diverse and beautiful and like mysterious. What happened also in Africa was I got really introduced to gardening. And that was weirdly. Oh, really? Yeah, it was funny. I had this garden. It's like I hadn't really gardened. And there were all these lovely English ladies associated with tea farms. And so literally I had this English friend who was, and here's how you split a plant. And she, you know, she was wow. like, oh. so I've turned I love into it. an avid gardener. So I think I had the lived experience of that biophilia and that attachment, especially what we know is like the health benefits, the mental health benefits. But honestly, it wasn't until I was really hanging out with Tim Beatley and learning and, you know, his cities and nature work, his biophilic cities work, and really, you know, starting to think like, yeah, this is a way of design that we should be doing just naturally, right? And of course, you know, Ian McCarg had talked about, you know, design with nature. I had always seen that as more going into oh, here's how GIS helps us layer things, you know, and here's the watershed and here's the contours and whatever. But I think biophilia is a different sort of thing about the actual fine grain stuff of what's the tree, what's the water. what, And so that has been really important. So for my, in terms of thinking about urban planning, I have had a crisis and thought maybe I should have been a landscape architect. Um, <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> it may be too late, but it, it is really something that I feel like in any of our 
classes, we have to really start thinking about sort of broad themes. I mean, why do we plan in the first place, right? It's to protect health, safety, and welfare. That's called the police power in law. And so if you're talking about health, safety, and welfare, thinking about planning with nature, with all of the impacts that we know mm-hmm. that it are in health and welfare, it's a natural. Mm-hmm. So when I had the opportunity to be at your last conference with the two colleagues who are actually teaching within the studio environment, yeah. it was very interesting to see how they approached it from different ways, right? I think at tech, our biggest way in which that comes is in our studios that are community-based studios in particular. And then we have, you've probably heard of Ellen Dunham Jones. She's our, okay. So Ellen Dunham yeah. Jones is the our master's urban design program and very much in our urban design program as we think about, I mean, her work has been herself a lot on, on suburbia, which is already relatively green. But as you think about what we're doing for redevelopment in, say, downtown, we've got a big project right on Marietta here that's going to be called the Art Square. I mean, it's got to be biophilic infused. Mm-hmm. And I think that tech's done a pretty good job on really transforming this space in what could have been a concrete jungle into a beautiful, lush, water-retentive, pretty rich in terms of habitat and diversity of species that I see. I have a bird feeder out of my balcony. You know, I still see the normal, the sparrows and blue jays and stuff, but you know, it's in the middle of the city. So I think it's one of those things that just, it's kind of, hate the term no-brainer, but it's it's just to be a given that we need to have this as a fundamental way that we plan. Can I say that it's really funny you just said that, Ellen, because I remember I was on a side note, I was teaching a few months ago at this senior center about, okay. you know, the biophilic attributes of the center. And, and like you just said, so this gentleman, I'll never forget his name is Steve. And he was 75, 76 yeah. came to me. And he said to me, Jennifer, I loved your conversation, but duh. what you just said it's like it's already innately we know these things so we kind of have to relearn why but i'll never forget like you just can't say it was so like it was so earnest and so sincere like duh (laughs) it was so cute we really have to take on the lawn the lawn needs to disappear yes yes it is really a problem and it is really i mean i think it's michael pollan i don't know if he was taking on the lawn at some point but it's not biodiverse. It's not what we need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got cultural heritage. And I remember reading, I think there was an essay in the the Post or the Times about somebody talking about mowing his lawn was sort of like making his bed. It was a signal to all his neighbors that he was taking care of his property. Oh, right. Yeah, there is that deep cultural thing about the lawn, but it's got to go from a biophilic perspective. Yeah, 100%. We we had an incredible (laughs) interview. Nina Marie Lister. Lister. Lister, who... Is out of Canada, and that was her big thing. Like she tore out her lawn and created this really biodiverse front yard, and then like got in trouble with the city for her neighbors sued her because it was a nuisance. Yes, yeah. Yeah. They're like, God forbid, there's a tree, and and it is, (laughs) and and I think we've been so brainwashed that a lawn is like making it. It's the white picket fence and the lawn and the house and all of this very organized space. Mm-hmm. And I think we yeah. have to like, you know, and, and there's like a huge history, you know, that like Nina sort of shared with us of why we just got to get away from it. There's you're dumping chemicals into it to either keep it green mm-hmm. or keep it, you know, weedless. Yeah. You're killing everything around it. It's a waste of energy. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, obviously, Sanbury, we're huge proponents of no lawn, you know, definitely a few people throw them in their backyards, but we'll even push like do the do the fake lawn. You know, if you really feel like <laughs> yes. you need the green, you know, uh, you know, there are better yeah. solutions that don't have all the bad inputs yeah. and wasting water. Yeah, yeah. I love that taking on the lawn. No, it's got to go. It's funny because I actually, you know, living in Midtown, I like looked at all these glass boxes. I'm like, oh my God, where am I going to live? I really, believe it or not, I, I felt like I couldn't afford a single family residential in the neighborhood I wanted to live in in Atlanta because, you know, I just don't have another $1.5 million. <laughs> yeah. But I did buy a condo that's low rise. It's called the Dakota and it has these courtyards that are oak trees and roadie. Oh, beautiful. Even if I don't have a view of like some tower at night, I can look out and see the squirrels are eating stuff and I see birds. Mm. Like that's just much, was much more important to me than having like the urban, urban lifestyle that people might want you to have. But yeah, I think that that's great. She wants to take them along because it's really, I used to teach land use law and I would always bring up the idea of, you know, what would people fight over? Like backyard chickens were fired, <laughs> putting natural plants, you know, I mean, of course the solar array, mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, I think we need to sort of educate people on, I mean, the other thing that drives me crazy, and this is my pet peeve about, I hope they don't listen to this. My neighbors in Charlottesville, they put these bright lights on their driveway at night, really bright, like those party lights. Oh, like, do you not know what that does to bird species and nocturnal cycles? Come mm. on. But I haven't yet had the strength to go get my pruning shears and cut them. So, Well, and I think know. that's a really mm-hmm. interesting thing you bring up is because, again, everything, especially Georgia, it's like property mm-hmm. rights. But really mm-hmm. rethinking the role that the property has in society and oh, how mm-hmm. it can be beneficial. And I think lights are interesting that you bring that up. Because we have a dark sky ordinance at Serenby. Yeah. But I see houses that have up lights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure it's like, as we get Mm -hmm. bigger and bigger, how do you monitor that? I mean, you can, but it's education. So I'm sure they just put them in. They look lovely, but they're not good. So it may look fabulous, but it's not good for you. It's like a cigarette. (laughs) Yeah. 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 With Chicago or New York, just this couple months ago, they had an extraordinary amount of bird death because a certain building, and I don't know if it was a malfunction of the lights, but these birds were just, you oh, know. no. Dark sky ordinances should be everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, agree. agree. Mm-hmm. And, and especially, I just think, well, you know, my, my get us there is all those empty office buildings that people are losing money hand over fist on. They're not going to be lighting them at night because they certainly can't afford them. Exactly. But it really needs that... It just makes complete sense. So, yeah, I think the more we start to talk about, you know, we talk about this a lot in land use planning, every piece of property is unique, but every piece of property is also interconnected. Yeah. What you do with your property is really significant and not, you know, one thing I struggled with and still do, I think, even when we talk in the college of design, we're so anthropocentric. We talk about humans all the time. I kind of like to talk about all species in any of our discussion, but like, oh, those soft people over in the College of Design. I know. Whales. And, <laughs> but it's part of the interconnectedness. We have to plan not just for humans, but we have to plan for systems. All species. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting you said that too, Ellen, because Monica and I was talking about this thing about squishiness that, oh, yes, yeah, talking about nature. You know, it was, but I feel like there's this new 
abundance of awareness that we have to consider it all interconnected and stop thinking about, oh, you're a tree hugger or you're squishy or you're like woo-woo talking about things that don't matter when it's all that matters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We talk about it all the time. It's it's all that matters. We have a new program. It's called GT Neuro. And it's Mm -hmm. neuro is one of our like majors that's taking off like this over in the College of Sciences. And a lot of it, of course, is, is a good pre-med major, but it's also, we really have this understanding of, especially post-COVID and the, you know, the pandemic about how much neurological health is part of health mm-hmm. and how much where you are mm-hmm. in space and what your space is like and the humans you're in contact with and the other forms of life are you're in contact with really contributes to health. Yep. And so I was asked the other day by the GT, I guess it was the wellness people, what I do to relax after work. And I thought, oh, they're going to want me to say like, you know, I go home and do yoga. And I'm like, no, I just walk. I look at the trees. I look at the buildings. I listen to people talking to each other. I do not put on a headset. I don't put on a podcast. Sorry, I don't put on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I get it. That's okay. That connection while I'm just like relaxing, coming home from work, right? And we just need to do more of that. I get, I get a little, and this is when I start feeling, you know, certifiably old, but it's like, can you stop looking at your freaking phone while you walk? Could you just talk to somebody? Oh my gosh, Ellen, you're preaching my language here. <laughs> yeah. Or all the language. Or all yeah. these apps that are like going to track mm-hmm. your nature. And you're just like, just walk outside. Like we don't need mm-hmm. to overcomplicate it. You don't yeah. really need a tool to gauge. I know everybody's all about steps, but it's like, and that's great. If that's mm-hmm. going to motivate you, mm-hmm. you have a goal, but just yeah. walk outside. Walk outside, right. decompress, yeah. sit on the grass, watch the ants. Yeah. I mean, the Eco Commons on Georgia Tech's campus is lovely. Yeah. It's totally worth looking at. And there's a lot of the diversity of species that they've got food species in there. We were just talking the other day about some pawpaws and stuff. I mean, I like the belt line, don't get me wrong. I like it where it's actually less groomed than it is on the west side. But on the other hand, they're doing really great things there with plantings, with art, with people interacting. So if you need that a little bit clean room kind of open space to get out, get out that way. I like it more when you walk through Piedmont Park or sort of more in the south side mm-hmm. where it's still kind of a little bit raw, right? It's right, right. They haven't paved it over yet. But, you know, from accessibility point of view, you know, the paving is super important. It is important. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we could go on and on and like go down mm-hmm. that whole rabbit hole with, you know, Ryan <laughs> and all his amazing work right. out of tech. He's, and, our, he's an alumnus. I know. know. He, You guys... You birthed him, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just had George from the Trust for Public Land on, and we were talking about infrastructure and how mm-hmm. parks and water infrastructure are finally talking mm-hmm. to each other. Old Fort mm-hmm. Ford, you know, tech does it, and how we moved here in 2000 and the Beltline wasn't here. You know, it was like an idea, mm-hmm. I think, at that point. Piedmont Park wasn't even redone by then. And we just thought people don't do anything except shop. Maybe they go to really good restaurants, but they don't really do anything in Atlanta. We couldn't yeah. figure out Atlanta because we're like, yeah. where do people get outside and driving, yeah. you know, an hour, two hours yeah. north doesn't make sense. So it is mm-hmm. a huge benefit yeah. and really, really lovely to hear about. And I love to hear more green just in the current city because yeah. we need it. Yeah. 
we've loved having you, Ellen. Thank you so much. I mean, I yeah, feel like right, you, Jen, we could just go on and on and on. Maybe we need to have lunch together and just hang out and we can talk about all the things. And we love that you're here. So, you know, a little bit of belated welcome to Atlanta, but, you know, we're going to put all the things in the show notes of how to connect with the College of Design and with you. Awesome. And we got summer programs, music industrial design, building construction, and architecture. I know, I'm highly, highly recommend the industrial design. Can I come? It was amazing. (laughs) It was inspiring. Like, I was like, we're going to be okay. These Uh kids are amazing. I'm so impressed. I I really did. I was like, okay. Oh, good. good. I'm good. I'm so glad. Okay, fabulous. Okay, (laughs) Thank you so so much, Ellen. Anyway, say hi to everybody down there, and um, hopefully we'll come visit soon. All right. So as per usual, I found this conversation truly, really compelling. I'm so impressed with Ellen's career and insight. And it was also so great to hear about all the exciting things coming out of Georgia Tech. Yeah, I really love the conversation. She talks about diversity and all the fields like construction, science and management. And I was actually pretty shocked to learn that the faculty and the program are majority female. You know, it's so different from what you expect when you think about construction. So it was really encouraging. Totally. And I could only imagine that the more you can diversify fields like construction and bring in different lived experience and perspectives, it really benefits diverse communities as well. Exactly. I mean, you know, she really credits her time spent in Africa with broadening her own perspective, particularly on issues like land use and sustainability. You know, and I really wish like studying or living abroad was an option for all students or really all of us, because getting out of your own comfort zone, having those new experiences, especially international, are such a vital part of everything we talk about on this podcast. Yes. And I also loved how Ellen brought biophilia into our conversation when we were talking about Africa, just how being surrounded by beauty and the animals and being outside of her comfort zone allowed her to have a profound nature-based experience. Yeah, I thought that was really beautiful too. And then again, she's really emphasizing planning that incorporates all natural systems and species, which I'm personally seeing more of in the wider conversation. Yeah. And we've got a ton of links in our show notes for anyone who wants to learn more. Also, sadly, this is our last show of 2023, but we'll be back in January with more amazing guests. Okay, Monica, have a great holiday and see you soon. You too, Jen. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement.